This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault. This is our second year covering the Hot Docs Film Festival, Canada's premier documentary film festival. This is the fest's 28th year, and just like last year, the screenings took place online. Joining me on the show is Rachel Ho, who last appeared on the show in episode 145, South by Southwest Film Festival 2021. We're going to talk about the great documentaries we got a chance to see. Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing, Dakota? I am excellent. Um, in exciting news, you're joining the show now as a regular contributor. You won't be on every yeah. episode, but we're definitely going to be hearing plenty more from you going forward. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. Thank you for for agreeing to partner with me. Um, yeah, I'm really excited Just to have such to... great conversations. It made sense. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited though. It's going to be great. I can get into a lot more things that we're both interested in, and maybe introduce each other to things that the other isn't. It'll be a good time. Heck yeah. Uh, now this was your first hot docs. What did you think of the festival overall? I really liked it. Um, I'm, I'm a very casual documentary watcher. Like if I hear that there's a big documentary out there, then I'll probably go take a look, but I'm not somebody that, uh, goes and seeks them out all the time. And watching hot docs, I realize I'm missing out on a lot because there's a lot of like really great films out there that you know, they're not scripted and they're not that, but they're absolutely fascinating. And they're always about pockets of the world or culture that I'm just not aware of. And that that's the whole point of documentaries. Like that's what makes them so great. So really happy um, with my experience and hopefully we'll be watching more documentaries from that. How'd you find it? Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like last year was my first time covering it and in going last year, it was much more of a, I had a, a theme in mind. So we did music documentaries and then one about a movie and so this time i know at the beginning you know some behind the scenes behind the curtain sort of stuff we we tried talking about doing some sort of a theme and looking at uh, how we can structure the show and so like my first pass through looking at all the different titles available and you basically just have a log line of what the the film is about and it's like oh that sounds interesting oh yeah that one sounds interesting <laughs> too and like I was like, all right, no, try to keep it somewhat coordinated to have some sort of a theme. But, you know, what? I'll just look at everything just to see what's out there. And like before I, I knew it, I had about like a list of probably about 40 to 50 movies where I'm like, I would be down to watch any of these. And I know we were going back and forth with like which ones we might try to go for and what we want to talk about and stuff like that. And we never really like ended up on doing some sort of a theme. And I think it worked out a little bit better because there was just too much great stuff. And I think in the end, we we, we saw some really interesting movies. Yeah. And I mean, I don't even think we covered even some of like the big ones too. Like, I think that's a bit that we missed and, but that's just what makes those festivals so good though, is because like you can never watch, I mean, I guess you could technically watch everything, but reasonably speaking, you're not <laughs> going to be able to watch everything. And, um, but that I, I think that's, what's amazing. And so you have the list and hopefully we can like keep an eye out and if they get distribution or we watch them later, then you can always watch them afterwards so it's nice having the list at the very least knowing like what good, great documentaries are out there to watch mm -hmm. and like even the ones we didn't see you're kind of paying a little bit more closer attention to what stuff is like trending on twitter or at least the stuff yeah. that the official hot docs account is like retweeting and you're <laughs> like oh okay if if i see this one come up later on if this pops up on, on netflix or amazon or whatever yeah i'll definitely check this one out then because i heard good things about it months ago yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what's the great thing about film festivals in general is just like it gives great exposure to some of the more I don't know, underground kind of ones that maybe aren't going to get a wide release or, you know, and also because the smaller ones, maybe they pick up a lot of 
hype and then they do get on Netflix and, and Amazon. And that's, that's awesome too. Mm-hmm. I'm still hoping to like one day cover something and like a year later, it just like absolutely blows up. Like I, I've covered some stuff where I'm like, Ooh, yeah, this is going to be like, this is, you know, X big director's next movie. I know this is going to be a big deal, but like any of the movies we covered today, none of them were like a, a big name director. There, I guess there was one that you did. Um, Edgar Wright did a documentary, yeah. which obviously every film lover knows who Edgar Wright is. But other than that, yeah. like none of these are like big film directors where I would love to be be like, oh, hey, next year at the Oscars, this was like the big breakout film by this filmmaker or like got picked up by A24 and is now being distributed by them or something like that. Like that would be crazy. That'd be cool. You know, you get in on the ground floor and you could be like, I I, I knew it was cool before it was cool kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, now we ended up watching five movies. We both ended up watching five of the same movies. And then we also kind of watched a couple uh separately so we're gonna mm-hmm. start out by uh, by talking about the five that we saw together then we can have a bit of a conversation about it and then we'll briefly sort of just mention the ones that we had saw separately but uh yeah we'll get right into this and the first one we're going to talk about is a movie called set which was directed by scott Golick. and i feel like i need you to describe this one because you actually <laughs> did an interview with the director and it's it's really fantastic people need to check it out on on rachelkh.com uh, where, where they can read all about it. But, uh, but this was a wild one. So, so you, you set this one up. Table setting is something that people take very seriously. She is proud of her table arrangement and thinks she deserves a word of congratulation. The point of having the table set in just the right fashion. Doesn't the butter knife belong here? Let you take all stress away from people. Stressing me out a little bit. I don't even know what to do right now. Tablescape and I would compare to brain surgery. God, it's hard. Oh, Jesus. It's serious business. 15 minutes till forks down. This is the Olympics of table setting. There are rules and regulations, and you follow those just like in a sport. Uh, yeah, I love this one so much. So it's it's basically it's about competitive table setting. And I mean, full stop. What else do you need to say right there? Like competitive table well, setting. I think you should explain what competitive <laughs> table setting is uh so you got it's it's i don't say it's it's not a reality show but there are reality show elements to it and it's about a group of people in i don't know they're not all in southern california but it takes place in uh, orange county fair and they have alongside all the other kind of wonky competitions that they have in in a county fair they also have table setting and it's literally exactly what you think it is. It's who can come up with, you know, the most beautiful, the most creative, the most interesting table setting. And you have to follow the rules. You, there's like very, very strict rules that you have to follow. And then there's a theme every year. And this year there were two themes. Uh, there was light it up and international travel and most of the competitors did international travel Um, and so the documentary follows uh, a group of the competitors and uh, of with kind of varying backgrounds and and uh, varying degrees of success as well in other competitions and it goes through them prepping for the oc fair and then actually competing and seeing who wins and when it sounds like it's something that you're not interested in or it sounds really weird, I get that. But trust me, you'll get really, really interested in it and you will develop feelings for table settings that you never knew existed within you, but you will get judgmental um, about them. And yeah, it, it's a great documentary. Like I really enjoyed it. And 
Um, I enjoyed all the backstories of, of the different competitors and just the idea that there's something so random and so wonky that people could be that passionate about and put in that much effort. I just think is brilliant. I love that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I I touched on my review and like the thing that I really compared it to was uh, the the great Christopher Guest film yeah. Best in Show, and it really feels like that where <laughs> you you know you get like all these talking head interviews with a bunch of the different contestants that they're following and they're talking about how they got into it and what their passion is and what their style is and what makes them unique and all that sort of stuff. And then we like see them going about how they prepare for this competition, just like best in show, you know, in best in show, they're talking about their dog and how they got into show dog competitions and the primping and the grooming and everything that they need to do. And then the road to the actual competition, it's the exact same format where like, I swear if if Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hare popped up in this movie, I would, I would go, aha, I, I knew this was all fake. But like, <laughs> holy cow, the, this movie just like, I, I couldn't stop laughing just of like how absurd all of it is. But yeah, you get super invested. I think the other thing I was comparing it to when I think I was talking with you about it when we we're just chatting and um, I was like, it's when you're watching the Olympics and you turn on some sport you've never watched before, and within an hour you've become an expert on that sport. You're like, oh no, come on, how can the ref call that not a foul? Like, what, <laughs> what's the deal with that? Like, I'm a, I'm a curling expert. Sure, I've never watched it in four years. Like that, or never even like. attempted to play to to, to do <laughs> curling. Like, you've never tried it once in your life, but you are now an expert on it. That's basically what. Oh, this is. I could do it so much better. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That guy's a bum. <laughs> but like, that's what it felt like, and like even. My wife came home from work and uh, it was towards the end during the judging portion of it. And, Mm. uh, you know, the judges are talking about, oh, yeah, and the spoon needs to be like this. And, oh, the napkin, you can't have anything on the napkin, all this sort of stuff. And, like, I'm trying to, like, fill her in on, like, what the theme was and all that sort of stuff. And she starts having opinions on it, too. I'm like, you were even here for the first half of this documentary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's because it's it's – it's relatable, but not at the same time. Like, I think anybody can have an opinion on, like, it's art. Like, I know it sounds, maybe to some people it sounds silly to call it art, but I genuinely think it is. Like, it's it's putting a lot of creative effort into this presentation of that happens mm-hmm. to be a table setting. And I think that maybe sometimes, like, if there's a painting or, um, I don't know, performing arts, like, some people might feel a bit, I don't know enough about painting i don't know enough about like different art stuff like i always joke with my friends that like i don't art i don't art at all like i go to art galleries and i'm like i don't understand a lot of the stuff that's going on in here um but it looks (laughs) cool like i i just that's my brains never really work that way but i feel like table settings is a bit more accessible almost because we all eat at a table table. Yeah, like you've sat at a table at some point in your life and, Mm -hmm. you know, you've eaten and it doesn't necessarily mean that you've had to have eaten at like a five star restaurant with the proper forks, like, you know, like the Titanic scene where they go, like, start from the outside and work your way in. Like, you don't have to have had to have to have done that. But everybody's, you know, if you've just sat down and had a plate of food put in front of you with, with, you know, forks and knives on either side, you can have an opinion on it. And I think that that's kind of what what makes it such a compelling documentary? Like it's kind of sneaky, relatable in a way that you just yeah. don't expect it to be. Or you've been to like someone's house when mm-hmm. it's like a Christmas dinner and they, yes. they have like a, a Christmas centerpiece going on and stuff like that, where once you realize that that's what like 
you're doing is you're setting the theme. You're like, oh, yes, I'm sitting down. The meal matches what the theme of the table is, and the theme of the table matches what the food is supposed to be as well. Yeah, it's true. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's and like people like the like the centerpieces and all those kinds of things, and it's it's that, but like times a million <laughs> for what yeah. some of these guys do. It's it's incredible. I like I was really blown away by the creative. Like you kind of don't think how can you be creative about a table setting, um, but they manage to, and they manage to like mm-hmm. put like layers of themes too. It's not just oh international travel, so you just do something non-american you know like that's kind of not the point like they they actually like there's a bit more depth to it than that which i i just i really enjoyed it yeah and i think that's when you're watching it when they start talking about what they want to do or what they're not they can't do and like some of it seemed a little ridiculous like uh <laughs> the woman who is looking for specific wine glasses and it it need to be in a certain yeah. style and you're like oh that's ridiculous but then like you start thinking about it and like she's showing you the different options and you're like you know what based on what she's going for yeah that doesn't really work and <laughs> if i was in her position i'd probably feel the same way maybe not to the point where i'm like oh there's where the they're at like a antique store and the guy's like i think there's about fifty thousand different kinds of wine glasses we have on this property i'm like yeah you can find something in in that amount (laughs) it but like the thing that i found interesting as well was you can have that extreme of like a person who's gonna spend thousands and thousands of dollars on like waterford crystal and like really really top of the line wine glasses and water glasses and all that kind of stuff but then on the other end there was one of the contestants named tim who was on a much tighter budget than everybody else and so he had gone Mm -hmm. to dollar tree and handmade everything like paper mache painted everything himself and i personally really liked his the best um partly probably because i i just liked his backstory as well um, but to me it was like it was interesting to see like look on both ends of the spectrum you don't necessarily need to have all this money to do to 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 pursue your passion of in this case table setting um yeah i I think that that's kind of a nice message and there was a a review on letterbox i actually brought this up to the director um uh there was a review on letterbox that went and talked and like a few reviews actually that basically were like this is basically white privilege in america like on 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 show right here and they and they just kind of and i was like and Scott said this to me as well. He goes, you're kind of missing the point of the documentary. Like nobody is saying that this is serious stuff. Nobody is saying that this mm-hmm. is like meant to be taken that seriously. Yes, they're taking it seriously, but it's because that's what they're passionate about. And yeah. why not take your passion seriously, right? But that doesn't mean that we have to look at it and and think, oh my God, like this is the be all end all of everything. It's, you know, and I, and I but I also think that it's, you, they did put in varying levels of, of income. So it's not necessarily just like, oh, it was a rich person thing. Um, you know, it, it was open for anybody and everybody. But yeah, I, I found that really interesting when I was kind of looking around online about people's reactions to the documentary. Yeah, it's one of those things where like, there is a bit of a ridiculous to ridiculousness to it. But at the same mm-hmm. time, like, just let people enjoy things. Like, come yeah. on. Like, sometimes I, I have such a problem with that where like, I, I remember like, I know this is completely off topic tangent, but like uh, recently when, when Marvel put out that uh, hype video and, and people were mm-hmm. freaking out and then I saw just as many people complaining about it. I'm like, oh my God, can you just not really just let people enjoy things? Like I like, had no oh, idea people were complaining about it. Like I had no idea. Oh, seriously. Wow. But, 
Uh, We're going to go off on a tangent there. Yeah. (laughs) I just think like, look, it's, it's like you said, just let people enjoy things. Like I, I didn't watch the hype video. I I'm aware of its existence um, because I was on Twitter that day. And I think anybody that was on Twitter that day is aware of that clip existing, but I didn't watch it. Not because I don't like Marvel. Like I, I watch, I think I've pretty much watched all of the Marvel stuff, but I'm not as invested. Like I don't, I don't necessarily care what's coming up next. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like, because I'm not in that boat, I just didn't watch it. And yeah. Right. Like why, if, if, if you're not into it, I don't understand why you have to take time out of your day to, to bring down other people's like rain on people's parade. Like just let people, like you said, let people enjoy things. And Twitter, I think that's one of the, if that happened. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, but like one thing that's (laughs) great about this, documentary too is like it's for i mean documentaries can be a real downer which i'm sure we'll get into later because there's a few downer Mm -hmm. ones that we've done but some of them can be just really heavy like the topics are really really heavy and and that's good too like those are important things to to discuss and be aware of but sometimes it's nice to just kind of put a pause on all those things and watch something that's just fun and then that is just Mm -hmm. It is ridiculous, but it's the ridiculousness that kind of makes it great. Yeah. This is the type of thing where like you read you read what the, the one sentence plot description is, and it's either gonna absolutely jump out at you and be like, Okay, I have no <laughs> idea what this is, but I need to watch this, or you're gonna look yeah. at it and be like, That sounds like it's not my cup of tea. I'm just gonna skip it and move on to something else. And like your mileage is definitely gonna vary, but like it was it's hard not to enjoy a movie like this when when like you're saying sometimes you just want something a little bit more lighthearted and once you get to know these people and like some of them are absolutely kooky and like i don't think i'd <laughs> want to like sit down at their table to have dinner <laughs> with them but at the same time from a purely entertainment perspective you can't help but not enjoy just like the pure insanity of like what they're trying to envision and, and accomplish all right, so the next movie we're going to talk about is Rockfield, The Studio on the Farm, which was directed by Hannah Berryman. Kingsley and Charles Ward are farmers who've gone into the pop business, converting the outbuildings of their farm into one of Europe's best-equipped recording centres. That is when Rockfield became the world's first residential recording studios. We'd never been in a studio. We'd never been on a farm. Some of them lived with us. They were living in Nan's front bedroom. Freddie is in there doing the finishing touches to Bohemian Rhapsody. We turned the recording world upside down. We had an instant feeling of we can do anything here. And uh, it's about how these two brothers in Wales turn their family farm into just about the most uh, important rock recording studio in the 70s onwards where they had bands like uh black sabbath and robert plant and oasis and coldplay and so many other other bands have gone through there and like staggering the amount of british music that was recorded there and so it kind of documents the the creation of the studio with a whole bunch of interviews from the artists themselves and that these two brothers are, are still alive so they're able to kind of talk about it and just relive the sort of glory days and, and sort of see where they're at now and and how much music history really ties into this one location and as someone who's who's a sucker for for both music docs and loves the type of music that is discussed in this film I was really looking forward to it and you get some really great anecdotes like it, it's really cool to learn like 
how the Bohemian Rhapsody piano section was written there when Freddie Mercury was was busy tinkering away on a piano while the rest of the band was, I think they were playing Frisbee or something like that. And the guy that like runs the studio is like, hey, how come you guys aren't recording? He's like, oh, Freddie's <laughs> doing something in there. And he goes over and he's writing, you know, one of literally the most famous songs ever and listening to Chris Martin trying to figure out how to write a hit song because they're they're stuck in the the labels paying for them to be there and he looks up and he's from London and normally in London there's so much light pollution and smog pollution you can't see anything and he looks up and he sees all these yellow stars yellow twinkling stars and writes a song called yellow and like so it was really cool to get, to get those like one to one connection of like oh my gosh that's so cool but other than that, like, I feel like there was a lot missing from this documentary where it could have just gone so much deeper. What were your feelings on it? A hundred percent exactly what you said. Like, I was in complete agreement with you. Um, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it sounds like it should be like a much more interesting documentary than I think it ended up being. You know, this idea that there's this random farm in Wales is like the rolling valleys of Wales. Like, it's it doesn't equate that there would be a recording studio there that ended up birthing, you know, like you said, some of the greatest rock music and rock moments um, in, in music history. And yet it just felt very superficial somehow, even with all of the interesting stories and the, the many, many, you know, artists that they interview, it still, still feels just a bit like, okay, I don't know if I really learned that much. Like, you learn a bit, but not too much mm-hmm. about Rockfield. Like I feel like you learn more about the artists than you do about, you know, the 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 recording studio itself. Which I thought was just a bit of a, a shame because I, I I found the studio to be like such an interesting, like these two brothers just decide, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do it because they love music and they tried to get their own record out there and it didn't work out. So they're like, all right, we're gonna go go a different way. And then also, too, I found it was, I mean, this might be a bit of a spoiler, but it's like, so the two brothers don't work together anymore. And they don't really address it. They just kind of say, yeah, we don't really work together anymore. And and they're falling out. And then that was it. Yeah. And you're just like, okay, cool. Like, you know, I I don't know. It's it's not bad, but it's just very lackluster, I think. Like, kind of forgettable, as as maybe rude as it, it is to say that. It's just, it doesn't feel, it didn't have the punch, I think, that it potentially could have um given the the history of it like if you're a fan of any of the artists that are mentioned in the in this movie you're gonna find it at least enjoyable like Mm -hmm. if if you hate rock music if you have like no connection to black sabbath you're gonna be like this is the dumbest thing i've ever seen why did i just waste you know an hour and a half of my life on this but like if you want to know what ozzy osbourne thinks and and i was actually shocked at how much you can actually understand ozzy osbourne because i remember a decade ago you couldn't understand a word he used to say in interview which i think is is very positive too because like i think he's he's taken great strides in like cleaning himself up and putting himself onto like a good road so i think that's it's amazing and like i noticed that a lot of people commented on that too like what happened to Ozzy Osbourne? Like he is like a coherent person all of a sudden, which is amazing. Like, I think that's great. Mm -hmm. Like there, at least in my copy, there was still subtitles on it. And so like, I still would have to read them for him, but like, I could still, I can actually understand what he was saying and he was making coherent thoughts, which was (laughs) damn impressive because yeah, he, it looked like 
he was not doing well at all in, in recent years, but uh, I know he had gotten clean, especially since his, his breakup from Sharon, of, yeah. uh, doing a lot better health wise. Uh, but yeah, that, that's a little besides the point, but like, yeah, a lot of it, like I'm watching it and it's almost like, Hey, I actually have more questions than you're answering. Can we yeah. kind of like rewind a little bit? And I, I believe the studio is still functional. Like they still are, are, are recording artists there, but like, they they just showed you parts of the the studio like oh yeah and this was the first iteration of the studio where we had it in our attic and then here was the second iteration and then we uh, upgraded it but then they like didn't show you what the modern studio really looks like yeah it's like i i think what you said is just more you're left with more questions than you are answers and mm-hmm. you know if if you are really into any of those particular artists that happen to be interviewed in it um it's probably a great actually I don't even know how great it is <laughs> like I I feel like it would it would give you like some fun like fun fact anecdotes kind of thing but yeah you know I I don't know if it would be something that's like whoa like that's that's incredible like, I I'm a big Oasis fan um I'm a big Oasis fan and so like seeing Liam and that like I, that that was pretty amusing to me like he's just really really chill talking about like getting in a brawl with his brother as they did all the time. Like that's just kind of what's the deal with Oasis. Um, But like, it's, you're kind of like, yeah, I I knew that. Like I knew that they, they didn't like each other. And I, and I knew that they had recorded um, like, what's the story morning glory over there. And, but there is actually for any Oasis fans out there, if you are interested in Rockfield. Um, and its relation to Oasis, Noel Gallagher did a 30 minute documentary that's on Oasis's YouTube page and it's called um, Return to Rockfield. Uh, and he revisits Rockfield and talks about recording the album. Um, and it's really great, like, because I think it's more focused. Like, I think if you focus on one record or one mm. artist's time, maybe it goes a bit more in depth into what makes Rockfield so magical as opposed to trying to be like look at all the great people that we've had come through here yeah yeah it definitely felt like that a little bit i don't know for me like i've never been crazy about oasis but i definitely feel like i learned the most from from liam's interviews compared to everyone else and like he's I know, very I, honest I in, too like yeah, he's just so I, like I brash in interview you had sort of framed it as the documentary was kind of leading him into to take a certain stance. But for me, I was watching it and it really felt like to me that Liam was acknowledging that this time period of the band's career was the beginning of the end and that mm. he was partially responsible for it in the sense of, well, the band was working because he wasn't, he only sings. He was out in town getting drunk and bringing people back to party while the rest of the band was still trying to work. And that was like one of the first major divisions between Noel and Liam. And so that I found very interesting. Yeah. There's also a funny story about them recording Wonderwall and um, Liam being like, I need a wall. Like he, 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 <laughs> yeah. need, he, he literally wanted to record against a wall. And apparently that wall is like super famous now because it still exists. That's a, that's a very side point for Oasis people out there. So the next movie we're going to talk about is Come Back Anytime, which was directed by John Dashback. Uh, this was this is also a, a really nice, pleasant, easygoing documentary, kind of like set even lower stakes, though. 
where mm-hmm. it's just about uh, a Tokyo chef who owns a little ramen shop, a little hole in the wall with his wife, and he's getting a little bit older, and he's acknowledging that the shop isn't going to be around forever. He doesn't have an apprentice. He doesn't have anyone else that works for him. No one else really knows the recipe of how he does it. It's not like it's some su- super secret recipe. Just he doesn't he hasn't taught it to anyone. <laughs> And he's acknowledged that when he retires or if, you know, if he probably has it his way, he'll probably uh, work into the shop until he he falls over dead, uh, that that's the end of this noodle shop. But the thing is, he's got regular customers who like it, it literally feels like it's uh, a version of cheers where you have the exact same people come in every single day. They all know each other's name. They all know each other's orders. And it's and even so it it, like, despite it being a ramen shop, it's almost more of a social place where they're there to have some sake and like, Oh, Hey, and also, uh, I guess I'm hungry now. So give me a bowl of noodles too. But it's such a gentle movie. There is no conflict. He's not up for any awards. He's not about to be kicked out by his landlord. He's not retiring at the end of the year. It's just one man kind of getting a little bit older and reliving his life and his work experience and how it relates to this tiny little community in Tokyo. And it's just like so relaxing and it made me so hungry for ramen afterwards. <laughs> I Yeah, I, I I love this one. Like I think I wrote in my um, – it's like in, in my review, it's like it's like a big hug. Like this is just such a, a really comforting – documentary like and which is great because ramen is such a comforting food you know and it's i like i think it's it's just excellent storytelling like it doesn't necessarily like you mentioned doesn't have to have conflict it doesn't need to be this big dramatic you know oh, what's going to happen here like what's going to happen it's just about a man who you know set up a ramen shop um to support his family and it happens to be really, really, really good. And they happen to develop these great relationships and form a community with the regulars. Um, and it's, it's just lovely. Like, I think you, when you watched it, the thing that you, you texted me was like, you're like, it's delightful. And I'm like, it is, that is the perfect word for <laughs> what this is. It is delightful. Like, it's just such a nice film. And, they have this really nice jazz score that's over the whole thing, which I think is mm-hmm. such a perfect, um, perfect choice of music to use. And it's just throughout the entire thing. And it just feels like you're like, it's like a rainy day and you're listening to some jazz music and you've got, you know, a nice warm bowl of ramen in front of you. And that's basically yeah. what the documentary feels like. And I think that's amazing that you can come away from a documentary, like with a, like a, like a visceral feeling versus, like, oh, I learned something or like, oh my God, that's horrifying. Like that, like we need to do something about that. Like this was just, you come away from with just a very comforted feeling. And I think that's tremendous. It's just so interesting of like how the conceit of the documentary is basically, it's kind of like a year in a life of him because about every quarter of the way through the film, it'll be like, uh, spring, summer, fall, winter. And so it's just like this one year in his life and how different times of the year, he kind of does different things. Like he, he actually like brings his regular customers with him to go farming, which is crazy. Yeah. Like he, he's like, oh yeah, I, I know this, this region in the mountains where uh, you can get wild mountain yams. And so, you know, I just bring some people from the shop and they help me dig up wild mountain yams and uh, we get some, some fresh rice from them as well. And uh, we just make some food. And like that, that's the point of the story is like, yeah, I, I bring my customers with me to go dig up some yams. 
The great thing about the farming too is I think when I first saw like he was, you know, like tending to the to the grounds or whatever, the first thing I thought was, oh, so this is where he gets like his ingredients or something like that. Like that's what I thought it was leading <laughs> to. Like like, oh he nope. like wow, this guy's really intense. Like he he cultivates his own, you know, herbs and, and vegetables to put into the ramen broth and and to serve to his customers. And then I'm like, I'm like, oh no, this is like this is just what he does for fun. Like it was just something that he and it's just some something he enjoys doing. Um and yeah. and I, I thought that that's just it's so, there's something really pleasant about that where, you know, maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe it's, um, I don't think it's a cultural thing because I think the Japanese tend to be very hardcore about their work as well. But it's like, it's this idea of just be very present and be very, you know, if, if there's, and it's kind of ties into set as well, which is if there's something that you enjoy doing, just go and do it. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that makes you money. It doesn't have to be a career it's just if you enjoy it, go and do it. And I and I think that um, come back anytime like just exemplifies that perfectly. Mm-hmm. And like I, I would, I'm I don't know how to compare it, but a little bit to Rockfield, where a, a lot of what he was doing, I was like, oh, I have more questions about this <laughs> that they don't really answer. But the end of the documentary, I didn't really care. Like he talks yeah. a little bit about how he makes his broth, where he's like, oh yeah, and here's my my delivery of, of pork tenderloins, and then I just plop them in the broth, and then, you know, a few <laughs> hours later, they're ready. But, like, that's about it. He doesn't talk about how he makes his noodles. Like, it shows him pouring ingredients into the pot to make the broth, but, like, we don't have any real connection with, hey, this is kind of what his, his recipe is, and it's not like, hey, I can't tell you what it is. It's just not included. Yeah, and I, like, it's... There's another documentary that came out um, quite a while ago now, I think, uh, 2011, uh, The Jiro Loves Sushi. Did you ever watch that one? Yeah, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, yeah. Dreams of Sushi, sorry, yeah. And that one, to me, is just like, it, I think it's going to be compared to it a lot, but to me, they're completely different documentaries. Like, that one, it really goes into making the sushi and like the process mm-hmm. like i always remember like the the one of the chefs um, making eggs and like he spent a year <laughs> making eggs and you're just like wow like i you know they they have that level of dedication but like that documentary was very much so about the food and the restaurant whereas come back at, um come back anytime it's not it's less about the ramen even though it's put out there as a ramen documentary but it's not really about the ramen <laughs> it's about the shop yeah. and it's about the man and it's about the company and his wife and his family like it's about it's about a lot more than just the food and i think that that's mm-hmm. very refreshing especially these days where like people are very food obsessed you know m- myself included like i love good food and i like eating but i think it's kind of nice that this one isn't about like just really sexy shots of of ramen like really sexy shots of like the broth being made and things like that. Like it's not, it's, it's a little bit more than just about the food. And I think that that's, that's kind of what separates it from, um, from Jiro and some other, you know, food based documentaries and films as well. I think that that's what makes it so great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's, it's almost falls into like the sort of subgenre movies of, of conflict free movies of, 
where almost as little happens mm-hmm. as far as plot wise goes. And like, I, I think about my neighbor Totoro kind of is sort of similar mm-hmm. to that. There's a John Favreau yeah. movie chef, which is sort of similar where, you know, there's a bit, a bit of inciting incident at the beginning and then the rest is just about him making food and that's all it is. But there, there's a few movies like that where every once in a while we are just like, I just need something that's relaxing and yeah. it isn't going to make me, angry or make me sad or whatever and i'm not like in a mood to just like laugh hysterically i just want to be with a story and this is the type of movie that that is great for that 100 percent. so the next movie we watch speaking of uh things that are hysterical is a movie called <laughs> hysterical that's a great <laughs> transition that i did not plan at all but i love it and it's uh directed by andrea Men have always gotten to do things first. So by sheer numbers, more men have been doing comedy for longer because women for so long were expected to stay home, have children, and then die. All right, we got a funny lady coming to the stage right now. Let's make some noise for her. I've been introed, like, the fact that I'm a woman is like a wacky experiment. They'll be like, we got a young lady coming up. Yeah, like, let's see how this goes down. It is all about the world of... uh, women doing stand-up comedy and it's a bit of an interesting one because it's not so much about the craft or or how they got their starts or the rise it really is this this is a little bit tricky to like make sure i'm explaining it correctly but it's it's about their experiences of doing the act of stand-up comedy nothing to do with the actual performance of it just What's it like being a woman in this industry that is dominated by men, where the bookers are all men, where the audience is, for the most part, men? All this sort of stuff is just so male-dominated. And then you have this whole world of women who I feel like in the last decade or so have finally been able to to break through in the mainstream of being like, hey, you know what? This idea of, of women are not funny is, is bullshit, and we're going to prove it to you. And we've been doing it for just as long as the men have. We just haven't been able to get the, you know, the mainstream attention, the big comedy specials, the, you know, the, the late night talk show guest spots, all that sort of stuff. They've always been there. And so this, so this movie f- focuses on about 20 or so women who are sharing their stories. Some of them are, I don't want to call them old school, but definitely, you know, we're, we're coming around in the eighties and the nineties. And then you have people that like started getting a big in like the mid two thousands. And then you have like some brand new comics who have only been doing it for a few years. So it's really nice to kind of see like this generational aspect of, of how it all unfolds for them. Uh, but I'm, I'm sort of curious to hear about what your thoughts are. Are you a big stand up person to begin with? I am. I actually really do love stand up. I've always been, um, yeah, I've always, I've been like, I have a few, like I have a George Carlin record that I listen to every now and then. It's probably one of the most hipster things that I own is like a George Carlin vinyl. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, I listen to that. Um, but yeah, I, I love stand up, and it's always been a you know the ones that well, you and I are similar in age. And it's like we grew up. It's pretty much been men, right? Like it's it's you know you grow up in a time when. I, mean, I hate to say his name. It's like Bill Cosby was was around. You had uh, Seinfeld. You had Pryor. Chris Eddie Rock. Murphy. Eddie Murphy was probably the yeah. biggest one, I think, really, like with, with Raw and um, Delirious. And it's like, I don't think, I never grew up with the idea that women can't be funny. But it was always just this idea of, you know, women aren't given the same, or like, not that they're not given the same, it's just, it's all, it was almost as if women shouldn't be doing those things. Like I, they have a great clip with Jerry Lewis 
in the in hysterical oh, in that document. That one made me real angry. Yeah, where he was like, you know, women shouldn't. He's basically saying women shouldn't be doing this. Like it's unbecoming of a woman to go up there and tell jokes, whether it's about yourself or about your experiences or about the world as you see it. Like Jerry Lewis was like, nope, that's that is not in a woman's place. And I think that for a long time. That's basically, however subconsciously, I think that's how a lot of people felt. Um, so even when it came to, uh, like, forget stand-ups, like just female comedic actresses, like it was never, they they usually had to be a certain type of person in order to be accepted. Like I'm thinking Melissa McCarthy and it's like, and mm-hmm. that made it okay. But like, you couldn't have somebody who was like very conventionally knockout, glam, beautiful. Right. Not to say Melissa McCarthy isn't beautiful. She is. But I'm just saying like that kind of more traditional ideal of what beauty is. Those those women can't be funny. Like that's not that's not their thing. So I think hysterical. It's like it touches on a lot of things that came out of the Me Too movement where, you know, women can speak up now and say, yeah, it actually really does suck. Because I think for a lot of the women, too, if you were in that industry, you didn't want to say it because you didn't want to put more attention on yourself that. Like you are a woman, even though obviously you are, right? And so it, there's a lot of respect to be given to like Margaret Cho and Kathy Griffin, who were both in the documentary, um, for doing it at at a time that it it was far more difficult. And you really did have to be quote unquote one of the guys. And who knows, you know, the types of comments and things like that that were put towards them. And they just kind of have to brush it off because if this is what you want to do for a living well, you kind of have to play the game and play along their rules because that's what is dominant. So, you know, Hysterical, I think, did a good job of going over the history of it and and looking at from, I think they go back as far as even the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, um, and then looking at the new comics. And it, it's it's an interesting documentary. I like, I, I found it, like, the topic is is very topical, at the moment, like people, mm-hmm. people like to hear about these things. And um, for me, though, it just, it kind of lacked any punch just because I feel like all of the stuff that was in it, I knew about it. Like I I was aware of the Harvey Weinstein thing and Kathy Griffin with the, you know, when she got brought down because of what happened with the, that Trump model head or yeah, whatever. She did. Yeah. And so like, I, I just found none of it to be that like oh my god like wow like that's that's crazy like i didn't know that like i feel like all those things i did know but then that's just me like there might be a lot of people out there who weren't aware of a lot of these stories or a lot of the situation that hopefully this gives them some light on it yeah i i agree i feel like i'm in i'm sort of a a similar boat as you i i was familiar with with the kathy griffin incident and like i've i've known for a long time about like the hardships that margaret show has had to face Mm -hmm. not only being one of the first really prominent women comedians but also with with her asian background as well just the amount of of racism that she had to endure on top of the sexism Mm -hmm. and and the fact that like she's always she's someone that has very openly struggled with her weight as well and and so like just like sort of all those things kind of compiled like as a fan of stand-up comedy and not just watching but also knowing a bit behind the scenes too i was aware of a lot of these stories so a lot of it wasn't really groundbreaking for me it was really nice to kind of hear them all be able to kind of talk shop together and and i think my favorite parts of it were showing the archival footage you know the not 
like not just of the people that are featured in this film or you're seeing like their their early stand up and how they kind of got started, but also like some some classic comedians of like what their work was like of people that like I didn't really know about. Like I knew I knew the name Moms Mabley and like I've I think I've seen bits and pieces of her, but like they show a few clips of her back in the fifties and sixties. And, so, and that was really cool to be able to see that. For me, that's what was enjoyable. So if it was more like a documentary about the history of where uh, stand-up comedy has come from and is going with with women as the forefront of it, I think that would be even more interesting to me. Yeah, I agree. That's actually probably a really interesting take on it. I mean, they do go over it a little bit, but not really – in that they link they show it like you said in the archives like they just kind of show you that but they don't really go too much into to the backstories of those things because you're right that would be a fascinating thing to see like even though not to be like oh we should be grateful for where we are but it's important i think to realize (laughs) like the 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 like the the improvements that have been made, like the progress that has been made. Whose shoulders are you standing on basically sort of thing? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And so it's, I I think that would have been interesting. Like it's, it's a, it's a good documentary. It's a good film. Um, And if anything, it's kind of nice that it's, it's memorialized in some way, you know, that like that it, it exists, like it's nice that it exists so that, if in 20, 50 years time, people want to look back and be like, oh, like how far, like the, at least something like this exists to say, like to kind of put it all together. So that that might be yeah. a positive that comes out of it. Yeah. So there's two things I kind of want to touch on. Uh, one of them is clearly this this movie was started to be shot a while ago, but it looks like it was finished in the last year. So it starts out with a whole bunch of sit down interviews, but clearly as the film is progressing, they slowly start switching to Zoom interviews. Mm. Did that bug you? Did that work for you? Because as soon as it sort of switched to the Zoom interviews, it just one of those reminders of like, oh yeah, this this was made during COVID, and, and COVID's still going on, and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> From a filmmaking perspective, at least. I'll be honest. Like, I noticed it, but it didn't register in my head as being something off. Like, and that just is probably a testament to how often I see Zoom stuff now or, like, you know, are in a Zoom chat, I think. Um, God, yeah. that you actually just put me for a bit of a spin there. It's like I very much so normalized seeing, like, a Zoom interview <laughs> in a movie. And is that... Yeah, I I actually didn't really it didn't pull me out of it. Like I'll say that. It didn't pull me out of it at all. And I mean, like knock on wood, we're not doing this for very much longer, but it's kind of interesting. Like it's gonna be like a bit of a thumbprint for for movies that were made or documentaries in particular that were made during this time. Um, that mm-hmm. it is gonna be filmed in that way. Cause you watched one during South by Southwest that was all done over zoom wasn't it it was all like all the interviews and everything was done over zoom um yeah yeah i I don't know that's actually a really good point i didn't really think about that would you have preferred them to have just kind of like you know rather than having the zoom like maybe they could have just recorded some some voiceover and then they could have just laid it over um video would you have rather that or Maybe. I, I don't know. Like, I, I think it's just more something that like kind of stood out where if you're doing the, the zoom route, go the whole way. But if you're, hmm. you're filming in person, like it just would have been much nicer Yeah. if it was all in-person interviews. And it was, it was sort of funny where like, I would notice they would 
be interviewing someone and then they would cut to them doing some stand-up. And I was like, hey, they're wearing the exact same outfit. <laughs> oh, I know what they did. They just filmed them on the day that they were in town to do a, a special or whatever. Yeah. Was like, I noticed it with Fortune Feimster. I was like, hey, you're wearing that same plaid blue <laughs> button-up in both your interview and on stage. How'd that work out? That's really interesting. I didn't notice those things. You're got a good uh, eye. Maybe, maybe it's just me. <laughs> no, that's like that's incredible uh, that you have an eye like that. I think that that's pretty cool. I definitely didn't didn't notice those things. Um, okay, but the second thing I wanted to bring up was uh, Amy Schumer. Like she clearly plays a very important role in this movie. She's mentioned a bunch of times as far as giving uh, the opportunity to a lot of women to both be writers on her her show that no longer is on the air or also appear on it. And, you know, there there's a, a segment when, when Kathy Griffin's talking about the fallout she was receiving. She received a video from Amy Schumer and a couple of the other mm-hmm. uh, stand-ups that are featured in this video just voicing their support for her. And it almost seems like quite a bit of time they're trying to just dance around the subject of her because you can't really make a movie about the rise of mainstream popularity of, of female stand-ups and not include Amy Schumer because she is the number one female stand-up comic right now of the last few years. And so it almost feels like they maybe tried to get her and she either wasn't interested or wasn't available or whatever. And so they just tried to cut around her as much as possible, but it's impossible to not talk about her at the same time. So that was very interesting and kind of stood out for me. Did that stand out for you at all? That did, yeah. I know Amy Schumer, um, I'd say Ali Wong not being in there, and Sarah Silverman. Yeah. That was a big one that I was mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised that we didn't see them like actively participating in um in the documentary. And I don't know, I like I mean we could kind of theorize why I know Amy Schumer had a baby recently. I don't know if that like I don't know about the timelines on that. Maybe maybe that kind of affected it a little bit, but um, I, I don't, I, I also have a thought that maybe, maybe they don't want to take part in something like this because they're kind of sick of talking about it. You know, maybe they just don't want to, you know, they just don't want to be a part of it because they're just saying like, aren't we done with this topic? Like, can we not move on and just exist as standups? Like, do we need to keep mm-hmm. berating this topic? And even though they're not, I don't think they're standups, but I don't know. I don't think they've ever done stand up. But even having someone like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, those are two women in the comedy space, like com- like skit wise, obviously with NS- um, SNL. But like mm-hmm. they're really important to the discussion as well, and they're not in it either. So I mean, I mean, no documentary yeah. I think can get everybody in it. But you're right. Like there are some very glaring absences from it, and I think Amy Schumer and Sarah Silverman to me were the two that. Um, really surprised me that they weren't in it because I thought that they would have taken that opportunity to do it. But, but yeah, I, who knows? I mean, do, do you have any thinking of why they might not have wanted to do it if they didn't uh, want the to do it? The only thing I can think of is, is that she either wasn't available or didn't want to do it. Yeah. And, and I don't know why she wouldn't want to do it considering all of her other contemporaries are in it. Mm-hmm. And it's not like it would be a, a negative sort of thing. The So it just must be, she just wasn't available. Like that's the only thing that I can think about that it, that prevented her from being in it because it's not like, Hey, we want to focus on more up and coming people. It's like, well, if that's the case, then why did you uh, focus on, you know, some other really well-known like Nikki Glaser well. was in it. Yeah. 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 Nikki Glaser or, um, or Eliza Schlesinger. Um, they're both fairly big mm-hmm. in the comedy world these days. 
Uh, I, I get what you're saying about Sarah Silverman too. I guess like, I don't know, I, I, maybe even someone like Wanda Sykes, I feel like she was shown a yeah, couple times in yeah, it. Yeah, Wanda Sykes. But if they're going like, oh, hey, we already got someone from like the, the 90s and 2000s when she was at her, her peak, maybe they're like, oh, we have that era covered. But like, she was still probably the biggest yeah, name at I, the time as well. So like, I, I, I would know. think like there, cer- like there, there aren't that, like the whole point is there aren't that many female standups. Like there really aren't, especially the ones that have been able to make it um quite big and prior Mm. to the last say five years like there's not too too many of them um that don't have it so i i don't know i mean i there was i think it i think it was nikki glazer when they they asked her like about being like women being funny and i think they posed the question as where do you think the idea that women can't be funny comes from and i i'm pretty sure it's nikki glazer and um she goes she goes, I thought we weren't talking about that. She's like, I thought we weren't going to talk <laughs> yeah. about that. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not asking you like why women can't be funny. I'm asking you, where do you think the idea came from? And it's just like a bit of a, like a roundabout way of asking the exact same question. But I like, I can sense that because I honestly, I feel the same way too sometimes where I'm like, do we need to keep prattling on about women being funny? Like, is that something that yeah. gen- like that is that really something we need to keep talking about? One of the greatest sitcoms, like one of the greatest comedic things on television that has happened in the last ten years was Veep, and that was all because of Julia Louis Dreyfus. So it's like mm-hmm. I don't know if we really need to keep talking about this, but you know, evidently we do. I don't you know. The point where you either believe that you either still believe, yeah, that, or you you never believe that. So it's like, true. You're not. It's not going to change anything. And like, I'm not going to watch a Cyril being like, I don't believe women are funny. The documentary changed my mind. <laughs> exactly. Like, like no one ju- is going to watch this movie with that. And also it's like, if you, if you already don't think women are funny, you're not going to watch hysterical. Like that's not going to be yeah. something that you're like, oh, this seems like a great thing. That's right up my street. Like, and I, I think that it's great having these kind of social issues, having a spotlight and, um, more people talking about it. But the even greater thing would be if we just, it just stopped because not because we all be were quiet about it, not because it all just kind of, but it's just because it's just normal and there's nothing more to talk about it. And I think if anything, it's encouraging that after watching hysterical, I kind of went, yeah, like there's nothing new to say, which is great because that means maybe we can just move on now and just let stand up female stand up, not to say like they will always continue to be, um, a, a specific type of barrier that females will have in the stand-up world than men have. That's just, you know, I don't know if that will ever change, unfortunately, but I don't think that it is a full stop. No, you cannot come, like, you can't sit at this table anymore. Like, I don't I don't think that that exists anymore. Um, I think if you're mm-hmm. good, you're good. And, you know, there's plenty of male comics out there who say the same thing. Like, no, there's no, like, Jerry Lewis doesn't exist anymore. Like, that type of thinking I don't think exists anymore. Thank God. All right, so the last movie that we both saw together was uh, The Most Beautiful Boy in the World, directed by uh, Christiane Petri and Christina Lindstrom. In 1970, Lucchino Visconti went around the world to find the perfect beauty for the lead in his upcoming film, Death in Venice. Quel âge a-t-il? Il est très grand, hein? De taille, 15 centimes. Il est très beau. Il lui a enlevé son boulonnet. This was a very interesting movie. This is uh, tells a story about how a f- young 15-year-old boy is cast in a Luciano Visconti film, Death in Venice, 
who was cast specifically because he is really, really, really ridiculously good looking. <laughs> and the sort of life that this boy has to endure and the people around him and, and all the sort of struggles he faces trying to live up to that moniker and then his life afterwards. And then you sort of also realize wow, he has a, a lot that has gone wrong in his life and this is someone that's probably not going to turn out completely well-adjusted and yeah, it turns out this is someone that didn't turn out completely well-adjusted and, and just sort of how he's putting his life together. Uh, and so it tells the story of uh, Bjorn Andersen and and I got to say, like, you know, I, I I didn't really know much about it other than like the what the title and the subject line was about. But like, sure enough, as soon as they showed him on screen, I was like, oh, my gosh, this boy really is beautiful. But then you <laughs> re- remember that, like, it's a 15 year old boy. Why were they putting through putting him through this like hyper sexualization yeah. at that age, which, you know, history has shown that the media will do that with every 15, 16 year old boy, girl, whatever. Yeah, it was, uh, we were chatting a little bit about this before we started recording. It's like the first, what, 10 minutes of this are just so uncomfortably creepy. Like they use the archival footage of uh, Bjorn's audition for that movie, for for Death in Venice. And it's just uncomfortable. And it's not even just him. I think they showed a couple boys before him. And it's the way that the director is talking about them. It's just like, they're all teenagers. They're all young boys. And this and like, he was older too, because they were talking yeah. about he was being older than the others. And, and oh and this and Visconti is just going on saying, you know, oh yeah, he's very, very pretty. Like he's very, very, very pretty, very pretty. Okay. Can you can you tell him to look because there was a, a bit of a language barrier, so you tell the translator tell him to to turn his head this way, tell him to to oh, tell him to take his shirt off. I need to see him half naked. And and like Bjorn, I, you could see it in his face. He's like, "Excuse me, you want you want me to do what? Like what? Like oh oh, I have to take my shirt off for you. Like how is that okay? How is that ever okay? Like I I know that this is the seventies, and people always like to say like, oh, it was a different time. Yeah, I get that it was a different time, but like that still was not okay. <laughs> like that is not an okay thing to be that, you know, objectifying a um a, a child. Like he's a kid." Um, doing it that way and it it was so uncomfortable and then you know seeing him in adulthood and how much it affected his life um, that is you know that's always it's hard to see I think it's really hard to to it's hard to reconcile sometimes and it's like it, it can be sad and depressing and pretty dark I really enjoyed the documentary just because I thought it was interesting you know we we do this Every generation has um, a young star that they hold up and objectify in a way that is, when you look back on it, you go, yeah, that's not cool. I mean, we grew up with Britney Spears being that person, but even um, Emma Watson, like I'm not a huge Harry Potter person, but like Emma Watson was, I think, nine or 10 when she started Mm -hmm. doing Harry Potter or something like that. Like she was really young and there were grown men who were like fawning over her and you're like, that's so it's so wrong. So it's like, don't tell me it was, oh, it was a different time because that stuff still happens today. So it's not about the time period. It's more about, you know, I, I hate to say like, oh, it's the system, but it kind of is like, it's about the entertainment industry and, and the media as well. Mm-hmm. Well, like in, in recent years, like Billie Eilish right now going on. And then a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. it would be like, uh, the kids from One Direction or Justin Bieber, like 
there's always going to be teen heartthrobs, if you want to call them that, of of any gender. And for some reason, the world is just going to absolutely idolize them for one thing only, and that's their looks. Yeah. And, you know, talent is... Yeah, I was going to say talented. Maybe he was very talented, but I'm not trying to say that Bjorn Andresen wasn't talented. But from the clips that they show in the movie, he doesn't really talk very much in the film. Like he's just there as and I read the I haven't seen Death in Venice, um, but I was reading like the the plot summary of it on Wiki. And it's like the whole thing is just an adult man just staring at this kid while they're on vacation in Venice. And like he doesn't say anything he just literally runs around the beach and he's just a part of like he's just the 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 object in the gaze basically which is super creepy mm-hmm. <laughs> like and i know yeah. from 15 to 18 what are we talking about here but like you could have gotten an adult who could have made their own decision i think that's the other thing that makes it a bit heartbreaking as well is the fact that um you know he it wasn't his choice he didn't want to be a child actor like it was something his grandmother had pushed him into whereas some other child stars like you know justin bieber is a good example is like he i think he wanted to he wanted to be a singer he wanted to be a big pop star um so it's a bit different when you have somebody who goes i didn't really want to do this yeah yeah absolutely and, and everything that they show of the clips from from death and Venice they talk about his his presence and like yeah he has a presence he's like got really striking eyes that really uh, hit you instantly. He's got nice, like wavy long hair and stuff like that, that he's like, unquestionably, this is, you know, an attractive young person sort of thing. But like, that really is everything that he does in this movie. That, that That's all it seems like. I don't really see any sort of real acting range. And this isn't any sort of a critique against him, but like mm-hmm. just of uh, what the entire purpose of him being there was for. And the fact that it's not like Visconti was like going on a multi-year search to find literally the most beautiful boy in the world and going to all these different countries. He talks about how Sweden is like, you know, ec- the X number country he's been to after, you know, being all over the place and how he hasn't seen any boy that fits his standards of the most beautiful boy in the world, it gets really weird really quickly. And of course it's going to mess someone up and, you know, it adds to the fact that as he's got, as he got older, it seemed like, uh, he had some troubling issues with, with the different people in his life, whether it was his grandmother or his mother, Mm -hmm. or, uh, when he finally, you know, had a family and he loses his, his son and that sort of stuff where it gets really tough and the, his daughter is in it and clearly they've made amends in their relationship, but he was not any sort of real father figure for her while she was growing up. And so this is someone that really has been tormented by the demons that came into play when he was 15 years old and thrust into spotlight for one thing. Yeah. It's kind of amazing to think it was just one movie. Like it was, it was just this kind of one or two years um, that really you know, sent him over. Uh, I don't want to say sent him over the edge, but I mean, he, he, he admits to having um, some substance abuse issues and things like that as he got older. And, uh, you know, I think it's not difficult to draw a line between those problems and, and the one to two years that he had uh, under such immense spotlight. But it's, it's, you know, it's a dark, it's a dark documentary because I think we're all aware that it still happens and we know that it does and try as we might, like sometimes, you know, every time that you click on something about like Amanda Bynes, you know, having a, a a bit of a meltdown or whatever, it's like, we're adding to that, you know, we're, we're kind of the Mm -hmm. problem in, in that sense. And I think 
the documentary, I mean, the documentary, I don't know if it's, it's looking to make that sort of statement, like to, to make a broader, uh, argument or or shed light onto a broader subject but that was certainly what i took away from it which was just like look at what can happen because we can see it in real time with certain singers you know i know britney spears is kind of having her moments these days with the the different documentaries that are being made about her um but it's very different from you know you're talking 50 years later you know he can really fully see everything for what it was and it was interesting there was one scene i think he's talking to his girlfriend and she's getting very bothered by it. Like she's very upset by, you know, what had happened with him and, and, you know, uh, you know, going, telling him to go to clubs and all that stuff as, as a young boy. Um, and he's just like, it was 50 years ago. Like, it's fine. Like, you know, and she's like, no, it's still not right. You know, it's still not right. And yeah, I, I was very moved by this one though. I thought it was, it was, uh, it was really well done as well. All right. Uh, now we each saw a couple uh, films independently of each other. So if you want to maybe list off which ones you saw, if there's any like one or two you quickly want to highlight, I'd love to hear about them. Sure. So the other four that I watched were Writing with Fire, um, which is an excellent, excellent, excellent documentary about an all-female run newspaper in India and not just all female, um, but the women are a part of the lowest cast group in India uh, called the, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but the Dalit, um, also known as Untouchables. I think that most of us in the West, like if you've ever heard of it, that you probably heard of it as the Untouchable um, cast group. So it's about this group of women who have formed a, a news agency, a newspaper, and they go around India and cover you know, from mining protests to putting lights on like rape cases. Uh, and and the, they had an election a few years ago. Um, and it shows them, the, the reporters going through and being the only women in the newsrooms, being explic- you know, quote unquote mansplained to and, you know, disrespected and being told like, you just got to get married, like you're shaming your family. And it's, it's a really great one. Like I, I, I had no idea about this topic. I had no idea about this, this, uh, this news group and they have a YouTube page and everything like that. Like it's, it's, it's a really, really inspiring documentary that just shows like these women are, even though they're being told like, just get married, have babies, take care of your house. They are determined to get a better education, to get better at their jobs um, and to make a difference in their country and maybe even change you know, the country to get them out of this caste system situation that they're in, that they've been in since I didn't realize it, but they wrote in the documentary, like from 1500 BC, like this has existed. Um, so I, it's an incredible documentary, highly recommend. It's called Writing with Fire. Uh, there was another one I watched called Artificial Immortality, which talks about living forever as an AI or as an Android. And this is a Canadian documentary. It's uh, the director's Ann Shin, and it's really interesting. I'm really into like techie privacy AI stuff. So um, this was right up my street and just something I thought was absolutely fascinating. And it was, Anne actually goes on like a journey of uploading her experiences and her stories and her thoughts into an Android for her kids to see. Um, and it's, it's, it's so uncomfortable and so creepy, but it's fascinating because this is a part of like, this is what the future is holding. Like, we don't know what, what AI is going to look like and, you know, is it going to be something like, you know, like iRobot or, you know, 
are we going to go as far as like minority report? Like those kinds of, I always think of like movies and that, like how far are we going to take this? Um, But it's, it's a really great snapshot of looking at where we are right now. Like where is the AI technology? And it's actually, I think a lot further along than people realize. Um, And it looks a bit into what could the future, what, what possibilities could we have in the future with AI? Um, and it's, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And if so, if you're into tech stuff, if you're into AI, if you're into privacy, if you're into all that kind of jazz, um, artificial immortality, it's a really, really good one. To check out. And then I watched uh, a WeWork documentary. It's, it's got a really long title. Um, WeWork or the, don't feel the need to say it all. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> like I just find it like the title is as ridiculous as WeWork is. Um, if you're familiar with WeWork, it was a, or it still is, it's an American, uh, work sharing place like it was a it was a real estate company basically that rented out a bunch of office spaces and created the ba- very very kind of millennial entrepreneur startup vibe like oh we, there's like ping pong tables there's free beer there's snacks and all that stuff and it's basically about the downfall of the company and um the co-founder um adam newman and it was okay like i i was really into this was one that I was really looking forward to and after watching it like it it's it's all right it's interesting if you're interested in WeWork if you've ever worked in a WeWork um it's an it's kind of I think I wrote my like somebody said it's like Firefest gone right uh, and the last one I saw was probably the most aside from Summer of Soul I would say it was the one of the more famous um documentaries at Hot Docs this year which was the Sparks Brothers and it, this was Edgar Wright's uh, first documentary that he's ever done. And he chose to do it about a duo from America, from California, uh, called Sparks. And it's two brothers. And, and they've been working since um, the 60s. And I'd never heard of them. Have you heard of them? I, I know you're really into music. So did you know about the Sparks? I only heard of them a few years ago when they did a tour and collaboration album with Franz Ferdinand and they called okay. themselves FFS. Uh, so that was my only my only knowledge of them and i think that's the only music of theirs i've heard as well yeah so like that's kind of their their whole shtick in a way is like they're the band like the quote is is like your favorite band's favorite band like they're the band that us in the the normal world have never heard of but those people who are in the music industry like who are actually working within the music industry they know sparks and they love sparks and sparks apparently has had an influence on rock that is very much so unknown to most people even they even say like they went as far in the documentary to say like there are some bands who are working today who don't realize that they have been influenced by sparks um so it's it's a cool documentary it's got very edgar wright flavor uh so if you like his kind of sense of humor and his sensibilities it's very much so in keeping with that um and they interview a ton of fans and like mike myers is in there and then they got some other uh they've got some other bands as well like uh beck is in there he's not band; he's one person uh, they got flea from red hot chili peppers um i think who else was in there but i know like the sex pistols have been influenced by them the smiths bjork even kurt cobain at some point like he 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 talks about sparks paul mccartney i think also um gives them a shout out so it's the band that you didn't know about, but apparently has had a massive influence over the uh, the film, uh, the music industry. Yeah, I was I was very disappointed that I didn't get to see that one uh, <laughs> because I love 
Edgar Wright. Yeah. And, uh, and well, like I said, I don't know a ton about Sparks, but like the, this is obviously something right up my alley and, and I probably would really enjoy it. And I really regret that I, uh, let the time out and <laughs> missed it. So, I was, I, that was, this was Dakota. the one that I was like, oh, I, not, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I watched it specifically because I thought, oh, Dakota's going to watch this one. So I'll watch it too, like yeah. just to make sure. Like, so we both got this one. Ugh. And then when you found out, I was like, I, I was know. like, oh, well, I was like, at least one of us watched it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine but yeah it's so, it was good though it's a good one i'm sure you're gonna get a chance to watch it later like it'll come out somewhere somehow yeah this is a hundred percent gonna get a wide release yeah. whether it's on a streaming platform or in theaters or something this this is gonna be one that's gonna be known by people for sure i actually i'm sorry i'm just realizing i'm looking at my notes now and they do have a um a theater date so uh, june 18 it's gonna be coming out in theaters um i'm not sure what that looks there like we go in canada uh obviously with everyone's lockdown situation but yeah, I'm maybe maybe on digital for us. Well, I saw three other documentaries. Well, two, and then one was the first two episodes of a TV series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll start with that one first. It was called The Caviar Connection. Really interesting. It was talking about uh, Azerbaijan and how there's this idea of caviar diplomacy, which is basically you shower uh, wealth on people, things like caviar. And they will start uh, supporting or promoting your country to the point where you get widespread acceptance in the diplomatic community. And so there are several countries in the Azerbaijan region that sort of do this, where they have uh, dictators that are running the show. And uh, they they like will pay Lady Gaga to come and do a concert or they'll pay F1 to be able to host a, an F1 race in, in Baku and, and all that sort of stuff and just sort of. The corruption that goes on in order to get themselves legitimized in the world to the point where there was uh, an election and uh, the results got leaked a day before the election happened. (laughs) Oh my god. Another movie I watched is called We Are the Thousand. It was about how this small Italian village uh, wanted to get the Foo Fighters to play a show in their tiny little town. So the best way to attract them was to get a thousand musicians to play one of their songs. And so they get all these people together in a giant field and uh, and they play Fly. Um, uh, and... Sure enough, it attracts the Foo Fighters, but that's only the first half of the documentary. It's more so about this community of people who, you know, the people who who aren't able to be professional musicians, but still have this immense love for for a hobby that they they love to do, but have no real avenue for it. Realize that there's an entire community of people that are the exact same way because. We all know people that, you know, play guitar or piano or whatever, and they're not doing they're not doing it in a band. They just do it because they enjoy music. They love playing music and they've never had any sort of opportunity to play for anyone. And this is this was an opportunity for people to come together in a thousand, a group of one thousand people to just all come together and it really uh, share their passions together. So it was, it was very interesting and I got a little emotional at certain points <laughs> of it, um, but it's it's just like a super fluff documentary. The last one I saw was Withdrawn Arms, which was the most interesting and one that had a lot of feelings. And, and I, if you if you like what I'm saying at all or don't like what I'm saying at all, I wrote a review about it that kind of goes into it a lot more. 1968, black athletes were expected to perform and shut up. We were dealing with racism. We were dealing with not having a voice. Running became my voice. 
I knew something had to be done. My next move would be immortalizing history. But like at the 1968 Olympics, a lot of people have seen this image when uh, two black American athletes won a medal. They stood on the podium during the national anthem and did the black power salute. That is one of the most indelible civil rights images ever. Like I liken to it to the fact that this idea of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, we know their speeches, we know what they sound like, and we have the videos of it. So we have that sort of audio visual component to it. And then, you know, compared to someone like Rosa Parks, there's no photos, there's no, you know, video of it. We just know the story of her Mm -hmm. refusing to move to the back of the bus. We know that story. It's a tale that is easily passed on and transcribed and, and you understand the meaning of it. Whereas this, this might be the most impactful image of the civil rights movement. Like I, I imagine you've seen this mm-hmm. image, right? Yep. Yeah. This, this is the sort of thing where like everyone has seen it. It's, it's in history textbooks. You see it anytime they talk about uh, sports as a form of protest, things like that. It's so well known. Just me saying two black athletes with a black power salute on the Olympic podium. Mm-hmm. You know exactly what photo I'm talking about. But do you know anything else about them? Because I absolutely did not. I know their names. I know their stories. I know what happened to them afterwards, before, none of that stuff. So this movie tells the story of uh, the man who won the gold medal, Tommy Smith, and his involvement with protesting during the civil rights movement beforehand, his plan to do something at the Olympics, and then how it completely affected his life. Because as he he mentioned, when you are making a statement, a certain level of sacrifice will always have to come. And his sacrifice was not being able to live a normal life afterwards. It was almost impossible for him to maintain any sort of steady work. He went through two marriages. He had a mental breakdown, a whole bunch of stuff. But he's come through on the other side, and he's obviously in a much better place. But like so many people of color, their accomplishments are so often marginalized and he is wanting to leave a legacy of people remembering who he is and not just that one photo. And so he was working with a visual artist to sort of create an exhibition commemorating his life and uh, transforming that photo into a more modern day form of both protest and art. And it does a, he does a great job with the art. There's some fantastic stuff, but boy, do I just have so many issues with the documentary the filmmaking aspects as a whole. And it's funny. I, I was texting you. It's like, wow, I had a lot of thoughts about this movie. And you texted me afterwards. <laughs> you read my review. Like, oh, wow. I thought you had good thoughts about the movie. Yeah. I thought it was going to be one of those, like, wow, I was so moved by this. Like, this is, this is amazing. <laughs> like this. Is, and then when I read your review, I went, oh no, no, it wasn't very good. was it? Which is honestly such a shame because like, like you so beautifully just said, like, that is such a historic image. It's such an iconic picture that even if you don't know anything about it, you know about it. Like we, we've seen it so many mm-hmm. times and especially in our current state, like what's going on in the world right now, it is such a great topic to dive, like really dive into. So it's, it's so disappointing to hear that they didn't quite, quite stick the landing on it. My my real biggest gripe about it is that there were two men on that podium and obviously it's completely fine that they choose to make a documentary about just one of them. Mm-hmm. They chose the gold medal winner. He's the one, I imagine he was the one that was sort of setting in motion wanting to, to keep this as his legacy because of what the whole project was about. 
But the other athlete, John Carlos, is almost never mentioned. He's talked about at the beginning when they're saying, oh, these were the, the contenders to make the U.S. Olympic team. It was such a strong field for, for the track team. And both Tommy and John made it. And then Tommy and John uh, both have uh, a black glove on their hands on the podium and they raise their fists proudly in the air. And then that's basically it. We don't like... Hmm. I want to know what happened to him afterwards. Did he struggle getting work? Did he face similar issues with any sort of substance? Did he have marital issues? All this sort of stuff. What sort of backlash did he receive? We don't need, I don't need an interview with him for them to acknowledge his existence, but the fact that they just completely ignored him almost in the same way histor hysterical tried to edit around Amy Schumer mm. not being in that movie. They completely edited around John Carlos not being in withdrawn arms. Where where were the everyone else in the story? It was just, it was just focused far too much on one person, and it just really sort of bugged me that while this one story about Tommy was fantastic and him telling his story was so moving, and like I, I got emotional, and I cried a few times during it, but he wasn't the only one in this story. This like it just it just that just sort of bugged me, along with several other like small filmmaking aspects where it it just really sort of felt like the directors there was two of them start it with the end point and um, then try to film their way to the end. Yeah. See, and that, that's never a good way to do a documentary, is it? Because unlike no. like a feature film where it's like, okay, if you know what the ending of your movie is, that's great. But for a documentary, it's like, it's supposed to be like the whole film is supposed to be like a journey into what is the end point, not, and I guess maybe that's why you have such a big problem with it because it feels more contrived. It doesn't feel like an honest mm -hmm. depiction of what happened or an honest recounting of what happened because it's like they're clearly trying to skirt around some issues, um, maybe sanitize it a little bit. Who knows? Like we don't, that's the whole thing is we don't know because they didn't put it in there. And then if you're trying really hard to get to an end point, well, then the whole thing just feels a bit false and documentaries are not supposed to be false. Like maybe, maybe that would have been better as a feature film then if they wanted to do it that way, like create a script and, yeah. and, and do it that, you know, make, make that into a movie. It's actually, now that I'm saying it, it's kind of shocking. They haven't made that into a movie yet or have they? And I just missed it. Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> Cause you, you would think that would be something they would make it maybe now, but yeah, I, I mean that, that's, that's really too bad because like I said, it's, it's, it's an interesting period of um, Olympic history, social history, and given what's going on right now, um, it would have been a great time for them to to bring that back up and really tell like the true story. Like this is exactly what happened mm -hmm. behind the scenes of it all, and this is what happened afterwards and the fallout. Um, that's too bad, though. Well, obviously the 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 big ones. There's two big documentaries that play during hot dogs. One was the Edgar Wright Sparks Brothers documentary. The other one was. Uh, Questlove's Summer of Soul, mm -hmm. but this might be the, the next most high profile one, mm -hmm. both sort of in terms of subject matter, but John Legend was the producer on this. So oh, wow. I would have to assume it's going to get some sort of distribution, whether it's, mm. you know, I, it's not uh, ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, but I would not be shocked if maybe ESPN airs this or, you know, on ABC or, or something like that, where this is, this is definitely going to get some eyeballs on it later. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a it's a it's a fascinating topic like it really is it's a fascinating yep. discussion and you know similar to some of the movies that came out in the last year like uh trial of chicago seven the five bloods um what's the other one 
I'm thinking Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's like you don't need to change too much to show like to make it modern day. Unfortunately, like a lot of the issues that were prevalent during the time periods of those movies still prevalent today. And I think that's mm-hmm. where that, you know, 1968 Olympics, like it's still very, very topical, unfortunately, but it is. So, yeah, I maybe I'll, I'll check it out when it's out and see if I agree with your, your, your outreach. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very funny when you sent me that just saying like, I got thoughts and I was like, oh, interesting. This is going to be great. I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely <laughs> catch up with this one. And I was like, oh, okay, never mind then. <laughs> well, that wraps up our hot docs coverage for 2021. Make sure you check out all of our reviews on contrazoompod.com and rachelkh.com. Is there anything else uh you want to you want to plug here, Rachel? Um, not to plug, but I have a question for you is which one was your favorite? Did you have a favorite? Oh. Um, I would probably say Come Back Anytime mm. followed by Set. What about you? Set was probably my my definitely my favorite that was that was uh yeah it it entertained me greatly and then got me thinking for for many days afterwards so set was probably my favorite (laughs) awesome yeah so like i mentioned earlier uh make sure you check out rachel's review there's going to be a link to that in the show notes of course with our where you can find our reviews follow the show on instagram twitter and facebook at contrazoompod and if you happen to see anything during hot docs uh let us know send an email to contrazoompod at gmail.com Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you can rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, it will be a huge help for us to grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.